Work History is an informative and fun deep dive into the workers behind the professions. I'm your host, Cassie Townsend, a jack-out-of-all-trades. We'll cover the ins and outs of jobs, careers, and the daily grind that led professionals to where they are and where they're going. On today's show, we will talk to a pathologist by the name of Manu Singh. Hello, Manu, and welcome to Work History. Hi, Cassie. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Um, So my first question for you is this. What is your job? Well, I'm a pathologist, and a pathologist is a physician who is tasked with examining tissues or other samples to determine the cause or effect of certain diseases. So I look through a microscope a lot. Cool. Um, A friend of mine's dad is a pathologist, and she says he looks at a lot of dead people, too. Is that accurate? (laughs) That is always the first thing that people think of when they think of pathologists. Um, uh, Forensic pathology is definitely one of the more uh, notorious functions of pathologists. And of course, forensic pathologists are um, mostly involved with particularly criminal or accidental deaths to determine why someone died. So if you're a fan of CSI or Patricia Cornwall, you're very familiar with what forensic pathologists do, but forensics is actually practiced by the minority of pathologists. Most pathologists who practice in the United States are actually practicing um, in the medical field and have nothing whatsoever to do with forensic pathology. That's really cool. Okay, so I'm learning stuff. I love it. Um, So what... uh, what field of pathology are you in specifically? You're looking in microscopes, but what does that mean? So I practice one of the most common forms of pathology, which is surgical pathology. And I always describe it as if you've ever had a biopsy taken, whether it's a skin biopsy or a biopsy of an abnormal area of the breast tissue, anything that you've ever had sampled in the office or during surgery, those tissues go to a pathologist to actually look at underneath the microscope to see Ah. what the cells are doing. And the pathologist makes a diagnosis. And once that diagnosis is rendered, the physician who actually took the sample communicates back to that patient what the findings are. But in the background, there's a pathologist who's looked at that sample to figure out what exactly is going on. Okay. So you're not just looking like... so. Better question. What, uh, when you get a sample, not knowing, you don't have to give us any uh, HIPAA violations, please, but when you look at a sample, are you told to look at something specifically, or are you given a sample that's just like, hey, uh, find out what's wrong with this, good luck? Well, that's a, actually, that, that's an excellent question, because there are even some physicians who feel like the best thing you can do is not give any kind of indication of why a biopsy is taken, but more informed physicians um, kind of bring us into the picture. Like, you know, we saw something like a, like a, there was a mole that looked like it was changing or growing, and we want you to examine it because we're concerned that maybe it's a melanoma, as an example. So mm-hmm. anytime we know more about what's going on, if there is an abnormal mammogram, for example, and that's why a biopsy got taken, all of the clues help us make a final diagnosis. A lot of times the microscopic, Im- microscopic image itself is, in fact, sufficient to make the diagnosis. But the more information we get, the better. So that's, uh, that's a really good question to ask. Okay, so you're not just getting a random body part and like, <laughs> here, figure this one out. <laughs> that's good to know. 
Um, so what was your dream job as a kid? What, what, when Manu was growing up on the streets of wherever you grew up, what did you dream of when you were four or six or eight years old? You know, it's funny. I don't think I ever had a dream job. I think I was one of those weird kids. I was just, uh, I was very zen. I was just very in the moment. And uh, what I was going to do as an adult just never really occurred to me. I just kind of liked what I liked. And I didn't think about it. And that's funny because that kind of stuck with me all the way to the point where I made a decision to go into pathology. But um, <laughs> but I definitely had an enjoyment for for many things, music, science, mathematics. Um, and I didn't know where any of those things would lead me. Cool. Okay. So, um, so you didn't choose pathology until you were in medical school. I didn't even know about pathology until I was in medical school. Um, you know, in, in the 80s when I was growing up, it really wasn't something that people had a lot of access to. Um, the closest um, would have been when they had, um, like, the old shows like Marcus Welby on, on, on TV. But by and large, as a kid growing up in the 80s, there was no mainstream recognition that this field even existed. So my first exposure to pathology was about halfway through medical school. How were you exposed to it? Did somebody say, hey, I've got this mole, check it out? <laughs> or, or were you like, ooh, that guy on uh, George Clooney is a real hottie. Like, how was your exposure to it? So all medical students take pathology as a required um, curriculum within oh, okay. medical school. So as we're kind of learning, because, you know, pathology is really the immediate translation of what disease processes look like at the microscopic level. So when we're talking about cancers or we're talking about other uh, processes that affect cellular tissues, as part of medical school, you actually take a look at those tissues to see that that is revealed within that appearance. So during those classes, I just found myself more and more enamored of the entire field of pathology and just really enjoyed being able to see very intimately what those disease processes were doing to the cells, what effect they had on the tissues, because that's what's remarkable about pathology. You can see all of these changes just by looking, if hmm. you look close enough and hard enough. Interesting. So when the zombie apocalypse comes, you guys are the first to tell us. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, of course, the biting and the, the flesh eating is probably going to be the first thing. Um, so, uh, what did you, what did you originally go to medical school for? Like in high school, did you go, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a nurse, or I guess I'm going to just go to this medical school cause it's really expensive. Well, it's funny because, um, so I went to a medical school program that took you right out of high school. Um, so you got like a bachelor's and a medical degree kind of as a combined program in Kansas city. So when I was in high school, and, and this is kind of interesting because I definitely had the experience where I went into medical school without a vision of what I was going to be on the other side. Mm. <laughs> and I enjoyed biologic science enough that I thought if I got accepted to this program, that would be great. I like the science. That, that I can tell a funny story about that. Yeah, uh, please and do. So when I first started at this program, there was a circle of us, you know, we're freshly out of high school, we're, we're essentially freshmen in college. And we're sitting in a circle, and we're being asked why we went to medical school. And I just happened to be the first person in the circle to get asked the question. And so when they asked me, why did you go to medical school? I said, 
well, you know, I really enjoy science and learning about biology, and I thought this would be a fascinating uh, career. You know, I'm very interested in it. And then they asked the next person, and the next person in the circle said, I went to medicine to help people. And then they asked the next person, and the next person said, I went to medicine to help people. And every single person in the circle said, I went into medicine to help people. So I was the only uh, sort of standout in that group who answered the question in maybe more of a scientific way and not as much of a humanitarian way. And I realized maybe everyone else had this vision of how they were going to be at the bedside treating patients and, and having that role. And I just really dug the scientific aspect of it. And so it kind of came full circle when I realized that this field of pathology was out there waiting for me because my fascination yeah. with that was a perfect match. It's like exactly what you, what it was like it was calling out to you from, <laughs> from beyond. That's really cool. Um, what was your first job that you ever had? Like ah. ever in the entire world of jobs? The first job that I got paid to do was to be an office cleaner. So my mom had a dental office in our very small town. And every weekend, I would go and spend hours at her office. And I, would, I was responsible for vacuuming, cleaning, cleaning the bathrooms. That was, that was my very first job. And um, I will tell you, that was kind of, And a friend of mine was allowed to go and, and do it with me. So we both got paid to, That's to do that every weekend. Yeah. And um, this was, again, back in the 80s. And I think my mom knows this, if my mom listens to this podcast. So I don't think I'll <laughs> surprise her. Uh, she's retired now. But um, every so often, we'd take one of those mercury caplets that were for the fillings. Yeah. And just crack that baby open and just roll mercury around in our hand. We didn't know. We weren't supposed to do that. Oh, my gosh. But that is, uh, <laughs> you can't do that anymore because they, they removed mercury from dental so that is my one weird story about my very wow. first job. Is uh, so you've touched mercury. Oh, um, I I may have chronically touched mercury. <laughs> That's really weird and exciting. I love that. Um, yeah, because a lot of people's first jobs are like McDonald's or like for me, it was um, I was in this work program in the summer where I herded goats for half the summer and then I dug out a fish hatchery for the other half. Super exciting stuff, you know, for a wayward teen. But um, a lot of people's first jobs where they get paid are McDonald's or some other sort of fast food. So it's uh, probably really beneficial that your mom was uh, dental. It, was she a surgeon? Was she an uh, orthodontist? Was she a, just a... She was a general uh, practicing dentist in a small town. So, you know... So she just, did everything. Yeah, kind of did everything. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so when you were in college uh did you what were you able to have a job when you were going to school some people do residencies i think as far as the medical field is concerned but did you ever have a just a job to help you get through college you know i didn't have a job during college because um so the the program that i went to uh, at umkc was a six-year combined bachelor's medical degree program and um Typically, you had between 18 to 22 credit hours per semester, and you went through the summers as well. So there was oh, wow. vanishingly little time to do anything on the side. So that was something that I did not have access to as a job. But whether it was um, you know, just studying to just try to keep up 
for just actually being physically in classes or clinics, it almost, it, it kind of occupied a significant portion of your life. Yeah. Um, what did you do on the weekends? So the one really nice thing about that program, I shouldn't say the one really nice, I, I love <laughs> that program. The only thing that was great about that program were the weekends off. Well, it's funny because <laughs> when people hear about it, they think, oh my gosh, it, should, it must have been so intense. And I think it was intense, but it was intense in a way that, you know, it's almost like when you go through something with a bunch of people who are your friends, and you don't even realize it's intense. You don't realize this life is different than maybe the life that someone outside of this is living. You know, there's 100 people per class about, and you're just living that best life together, going to classes all the time, studying all the time. But, you know, obviously going out to movies and dinner, just like any other, you know, college or grad student, you find time to do what you, you know, enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had a solid group of friends. We would play cards. We would, you know, go out. We would do whatever. We were in Kansas City. We love Kansas City. And um, by the time you spend six years sort of around the clock with these friends, you're just bonded for life. And so my best friends today are still my best friends from when I went through that program. Even though we're all scattered at the four winds, um, we are so close. That's really cool. Do you have like yearly meetups or, or monthly or? Yeah. In fact, we have a, a get together coming up in November. Oh, so. that's exciting. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, we won't give out any um, secrets on that one. Do you, what's your side hustle? Like, what do you do for creative fun um, when you're not pathologizing? Well, I perform at Renaissance festivals for, you know, a little bit of a, a side gig. And um, I, I got into that about 10 years ago. And my very first exposure to, um, well, I should say I've been a longtime patron of the Renaissance Festival since I was like a kid. And I've always enjoyed them. And I met my husband at a Renaissance Festival when I was a patron and he was a performer. And then after we met, um, a couple years later, uh, we formed uh, an Irish tune band. So we just went out and I uh, had a background in piano, so I picked up a piano accordion. He oh, nice. Played, <laughs> he heavy, played, yeah. heavy oh, instrument. Tell me about it. I did not think about that uh, well enough in advance. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he, he's, uh, he's a very, um, very talented uh, guitar player, so he would play rhythm guitar. I would be on accordion. We had two friends, uh, one of whom would play the fiddle and the other one who would play um, whistle typically, uh, sometimes Boron, and we went out there and played a bunch of Irish tunes, and cool. uh, and then from there I was kind of hooked, and then a few years after that I, I kind of came up with my uh, my own show, a musical comedy show, and uh, performed that for several years with a female partner in kind of a classic musical comedy vaudeville, you know, type of thing, but just being able to sort of pour creative juices into that uh, whole endeavor was, and continues to be so much fun. Good. It, it's a way to balance out that science in your life. Um, yes. I can, part of me thinks that science stuff is, um, or a pathology looking through a microscope is very like boring, serious stuff, kind of like, you know, because I've been exposed to it only from TV and movies. And those are usually like, unless a catastrophe is happening, it's usually like the straight laced, very boring people are doing that. But then the other half of me that understands humanity <laughs> and how wild and crazy some people can get 
also makes me think that they're probably really wild times. Yeah, you know, uh, <clears throat> it's interesting because I do think there's something to be said about having that creative outlet because there is, the, the lifestyle is so different. With pathology, you really are just looking at something so specifically, what is it, move on. It's very factual. And, you know, the quote, left side of my brain loves that. It's mm -hmm. just, it, it is what it is, and you just kind of get to exercise that um, sort of true-false part of your brain. You know, there's no debate, there's no, you know, softness about it. And then there's the creative part. And the creative part loves coming up with songs and rhymes and jokes. And and, and that balance is, is a lot of fun. I'm, I'm really fortunate to have these things in my life. That's cool. Um, could you walk me through a typical day? So you uh, wake up, you've showered, you've done whatever it is that you do in the morning, you get to work, however that is, I don't care. You fly there. Uh, so you walk into the building and then what are you doing in a day? So this is a this is a fun question to answer because I've often likened the day of what I do as a pathologist to Rumpelstiltskin. So you know the fairy tale Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah. And so yeah. it starts off with basically um, a father boasting that his daughter can spin straw into gold. And so, of course, the test is that then they put her in a room with nothing but straw and she has to spin gold out of it. Of course, she can't, but here comes Rumpelstiltskin to do it for her. And so um, what I do is I, I walk into an office and there's a microscope there and there's a computer with the electronic medical system that I use, and these slides continue to come in throughout the day, and they're all representations of someone's biopsy or someone's surgical excision, like if someone has a kidney removed, for example. And I take that, I take those slides, I look at them, and I craft a report that indicates everything that is necessary for the treating physicians and the patient to know to understand what is the next step that has to happen, if anything. So, for example, I'll start to look at a skin biopsy. And I get to say, you know what, this is a benign mole, and there's nothing to do about it, and, you know, this, this is the report, and, you know, Godspeed. Or, you know, this colon biopsy is something that is going to be dangerous unless there's further removal, and so I craft a report that indicates that more needs to be done. Um, I may look at a mastectomy specimen and, and, and uh, say whether or not the areas that they have removed are sufficiently um, all-encompassing so that there's no danger that the tumor cells are going to grow at that site again, everything's out, whether or not the lymph nodes have been involved or not involved um, is what pathologists do. So at the end, a report is crafted that indicates everything that happens. So I take all these slides and I turn them into information. Huh. Wow. Spinning that gold. Spinning the gold. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing that I get to do as a surgical pathologist specifically, because I've always, as a practicing pathologist, I've always worked in hospital settings. And in hospital settings, uh, what you have a role in is called intraoperative consultation, which means that during a surgery and someone's under anesthesia and is getting a procedure done, like let's say someone has an ovarian cyst, Mm -hmm. And there is uh, a desire to know in real time if it is something concerning requiring further surgery or if it is something that looks benign, in which case just removing the cyst itself is a sufficient management. 
they call me into the operating room and say, we've removed this ovarian cyst. Can you take a look at it? And I do an immediate evaluation. Wow. Takes, yeah, it takes somewhere in the, in, the, in the range of typically 10 to 15 minutes to just examine the tissue, take a small sample of it if I need to. I freeze it in real time, and I actually use what I'll say is most akin to like a deli slicer. And I, <laughs> I know, right? And I take a really, really thin section. That's what gets mounted on the slide. And I take a look at it to see the cells, all while the patient is still under anesthesia. And that way, before anything um, is you know, decided and the patient is taken out of anesthesia, the surgeon knows whether or not they can stop or if more needs to be done. So, for example, Cassie, if you were undergoing something like this, the treating surgeon might tell you, okay, what we'll do is we're going to remove your ovarian cyst, and while you're still asleep, we'll see if it is benign with the pathologist, and if it is, we're just going to take the ovarian cyst, but if it turns out to be something more, we would want to do these things, like take the other ovary, take, you know, uh, you know other tissues down there and, mm-hmm. and would clear it with you that depending, of time. On, that depending on what the pathologist says, we'll either do this or this. And having a role in something like that, you know, is, um, is an extremely vital uh, part of being a pathologist. And it, and it really is um, a, a really nice uh, way of having that multidisciplinary team working together to make sure that you know, while you're already getting surgery, you get the right surgery for you based on what is found at the time. Cool. So is that is that scheduled ahead of time? Like I know a lot of surgeries are usually scheduled days, weeks in advance. Are you part of that scheduling? Like do they have to make sure that your schedule is clear so you could be there in the operating room at 3 p.m. when the surgery is at 2 or, or something like that? Well, usually... Or are they just like, hey, Manu, come in here real quick. <laughs> Scrub up. We got something for you to look at. <laughs> so we spend the day sort of prepped to go. So if anything needs us, we're ready to be there. And even when we're you know, dealing with the evenings and, week- and uh, nights and weekends, for that matter, we're always on call to mm. be able to go. Now, that doesn't mean that I specifically am the person on call, but our groups, uh, any group I've ever worked for, we're always... Um, a representative is always available to go in cases where there's an unexpected surgery. Um, pathology is interesting because it's one of the more lifestyle-friendly specialties, but it's when, when medical students come to me and, and ask me, oh, it's a great lifestyle, right? Because, you know, you don't have to take call. I'm like, oh, contraire. <laughs> you never <laughs> right. call. Um, now, it's not, it's not the kind of call that you'd be on, you know, as, you know, a trauma surgeon, for example. However, mm-hmm. so what can happen is, you know, someone might present to the emergency room at midnight with an appendicitis mm-hmm. and or what appears to be an appendicitis and the surgeon's doing the appendectomy in the middle of the night and when they go in, they realize, oh my gosh, there's something here. I don't know if this is just an abscess or something to do with the inflammation around the appendicitis or did we actually... Um, wind up having something here that could be uh, cancerous uh, growth, and they call a pathologist in the middle of the night to, wow. you know, to assess that. And that's something that uh, sometimes people are like, oh, no, you had to go in the middle of the night. But, you know, Cassie, I'll be honest with you. One of the things about being a pathologist is that 
you know, I actually, I groove on being a pathologist so much that when I have to go in in the middle of the night, I feel the sense of, you know, someone has to go in and tell them what's happening here. And I have this weird skill set right, right. that allows me to take this tissue and immediately freeze it and uh, stain it and take a look at it and shed light on what's going on for a team of medical professionals who need to know. And I always felt a special sense of, you know, I'm here to do this. This is this is my thing. I'm I, cool. <laughs> this is my job. Very cool. Uh, in five to ten years, what do you see yourself doing? Are you still going to be a pathologist? I don't want to ask what age you are, but you did say the 80s, so I'm assuming it's not the 1880s. <laughs> but in five to ten years, what do you want to do? You know, it's funny because I think one of the things about uh, my career is that it is one of the careers that people don't tend to burn out from. Um, yeah, it's, huh. it's got one of the most burnout-resistant arcs of any medical specialty, really. Um, I think one of the highest burnouts, from what I understand, is emergency medicine. So those high-stress environments. Mm-hmm. And pathology tends to be a lot lower-stress environment. So I, I could see myself still practicing. But on the other hand, you know, I'm a I tend to have a lifestyle that I don't require too much. So I could also just retire and just uh, happily bop along with my Renaissance Festival career. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I have got two kids, and I want to kind of make sure that they get set up for their own lives as well and, you know, don't need to be covered under my insurance, for example. Right, right. So, you know, all, all kinds of things can influence that, but... But most, I mean, I've seen pathologists work happily into their 80s. Wow. Yeah. Um, what was your first job out of college? Were you automatically just put into the pathology profession, or did you have to, like, work into it? Is there a hierarchy in pathology? Oh, yeah. This is, no, this is a good question because a lot of people don't understand where pathology actually comes from in terms of starting with medicine and ending up with pathology. So what happens after college and medical school, so once you get your medical degree, whether it's MD, DO, um, or for our friends over, uh, across the pond, MBBS, um, those equivalent degrees that are medical in nature, you go into residency. Because once you have a medical degree, you're not really able to practice unless you are certified in your field. So the path to certification involves a residency program. So what you choose as a residency program will determine what kind of physician you are. So are you going into family medicine? You're going to a family medicine residency. Same thing with emergency medicine, surgery, all the way across the, uh, the board. And in pathology, we have our pathology residencies. And when I went to pathology residency, I specialized in anatomic and clinical pathology. And those two fields are usually studied together because it gives you the most... Uh, versatility on the other end. Anatomic pathology is kind of what I've been talking about all along, which is looking at the tissues and seeing what's going on. Clinical pathology is when you are the medical director of a laboratory. So all that blood work that uh, gets ordered and, and gets sent off to look at your blood counts and you know your, your sodium and your potassium and your thyroid levels, all of it goes to a laboratory that has to have a medical director. And so I have worked in that role as well. So after you're done with your residency program, then you take boards that allow you to be boarded in that specialty. So mm. when you're done with residency, you are boards eligible. So you, you 
take the American Board of Pathology certifying examination, and wow. then you are boarded in pathology, and then you can practice. Wow, that's yeah. a lot. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so were you ever able to have any other, um, any other type of jobs, or have you only ever done pathology? Um, after my dedicated medical school route led me to pathology residency, that's really all I ever did in terms of any kind of primary job whatsoever. Residency is also kind of an all-encompassing... Um, Time-consuming. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, I've and- seen lots of TV shows about that. <laughs> There's also a lot of video games about that, too. There's a lot of romance involved, but other than that, it's work, 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 work. Yeah, I think I went into the wrong field for the romantic part. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely, um, you know, it's it's funny because a lot of people do wind up meeting each other in, whether it's medical school, residency, a lot of people meet in residency, actually. Yeah. You're, you're in your late 20s, you know. Mm-hmm. Love is blooming in the air. It's just pheromones, one or the other. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then... So you mentioned maybe having a side hustle or something that um, maybe similar to the Renaissance Fair. Did you ever just have anything that was just like for fun that you might have made money at that, you know, did you ever work at a sports bar? (laughs) I don't know, you know. Well, I did actually work with my, uh, my father actually had a medical clinic and I worked as a receptionist for oh. his clinic for a while. And um, it, was, it was actually kind of fun because it was very, um, it was very much a, uh, a sort of a, a the, the environment was hectic. You had to kind of keep your mind clear. And when you're doing it for the first time, things like what insurance someone has, what kind of appointment they need, you know, all of that was really for my, I, I, I was in high school at the time, I should have mentioned that when I talked about working for my mom as well. But, uh, you know, just kind of getting uh, your head wrapped around all of these. Because it's funny when you're, uh, when you're a kid, like a teenager. If you have perfect health, you don't know what everybody needs. Uh, you know, right. I should say a lot of teenagers have perfect health. So right. all of the things that you have to consider, you've never had to think about them before. Right. So that was kind of an interesting thing, just kind of understanding people in the community and what they needed to come in for and how that was going to happen and all the considerations with them. All the expectations, too, like easing that 40-something-year-old woman's mind for whatever she's about to experience. And you're just a little teenager (laughs) dirtbag sitting at the desk. I I wouldn't think that you were a dirtbag. I'm referring to myself. So (laughs) um, would you choose the same path if, if, presented like uh, now knowing let's say reincarnation is a total thing and you get to stand there and they go do you want to do the same thing again or do you want to do something different you know that's such an interesting question I think about that because um, I'm I'm a happy person and I like my job and it's it's a it's a it's a job that I think is um, rewarding I have fun with it but there are other things that I'm even more passionate about and I'm very passionate about music that was something that I really considered very strongly when I was in high school was going into music. Mm. And, you know, it's funny because whatever you go into, you will always be like, oh, what if I'd gone into this other thing instead? And so there's um, the grass is greener phenomenon that sometimes mm-hmm. pops up. I think if I had to do it all over again, 
I would still consider this as a very strong po uh, possibility. But to be honest, what I really have a, a really yen for is if I'd gone into music, I would have loved to have been a conductor. I think oh. that would have been just the best. And, and right now, it's kind of alive in my mind because I had that long ago sort of yearning. And now my son is uh, in, in college, and he is with the wind ensemble at his university, and they have a conducting uh, program, a doctoral program. And so seeing that program, I'm like, oh, wouldn't that have been fun to do that? I just think that that's the best. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's interesting because... Um, because I am fortunate because I do get to wake up every day and do something that I do find stimulating and um, that, that I do make a very good um, living off of. And when I was working with an oncologist at one of the hospitals um, that I worked at, he's, he was recounting talking to his son heading off to college and telling his son that, uh, you know, there's no job that pays you enough to wake up every day to do something you don't want to do. Yeah. So... You know, whether you're wanting to do this or this, don't let the income be the driver. Make sure it's something that you can wake up and do every day. Yeah, that's a good point. I had flashes. Um, I don't know if you've seen this movie, but flashes of you as Buckaroo Banzai in the eighth dimension because uh, he was a rock star brain surgeon. Uh, so he was pretty cool and a comic book hero. Oh, yeah. He was the best, really. Um, Perfect Tommy was my favorite, of course, but, uh, but Buckaroo was pretty darn great. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, you mentioned some passion projects, uh, Renaissance Fair being one of them, music being a primary in that. Uh, what, besides the accordion, what kind of instruments do you play? Um, well, my first instrument was actually piano. So, of course, oh, that, right, that helps. Right. Uh, open up all kinds of doors um, to understanding how music works. But I play, uh, I, I play guitar, and that's what I play at the Renaissance Festival. Uh, I also kind of dabble in some uh, fiddle and a little bit of whistle, just enough to kind of barely eke by. <laughs> but I tell you, uh, one of the things that I really also enjoy is playing timpani. When I was in high school, I was a percussion uh, player in the band. Oh, okay. And so um, the irony is that I got, well, I got recruited late in the game because they knew I could play piano. So they said, you know, we need somebody to play cymbals and you're a sophomore. Would you come and play with the marching band? And I'm like, okay. And it just blossomed into learning all of the percussion instruments with the exception of snare. I can't play snare drum to save my life, but um, everything else <laughs> I could play. But I get a chance Every summer, um, there's a community band nearby that I can play timpani for, and it's just wow. it's the most fun thing ever. And I drag uh, my teenagers sometimes with me because we all play instruments. My older one plays the trumpet. My younger one plays the flute. So we get to do it as a family, which is just fun. Fun. Yeah. So that's, that's something I'm passionate about. My, my husband and I will also do Christmas music um, every uh, holiday season for the Overland Park Arboretum. So uh, there's this thing they do called the Luminary Walk where they light up the pathways in the Arboretum and people just sort of have this holiday-themed stroll through the Arboretum paths and they have musicians posted at different places so they hire various musicians to post throughout the, uh, the, the event. And my husband and I have been fortunate to be able to gig 
with that. And uh, wow. so we have this whole repertoire of, uh, of Christmas music that we start on as soon as the fall season of the Renaissance Festival is over. We work that music back up and we go out there and perform it and have a really just excellent time with that. Very cool. Which Renaissance Festival do you perform at? I perform at Kansas City Renaissance Festival primarily, um, but I've also performed at uh, the Central Missouri Renaissance Festival um, and at uh, Sleepy Hollow as well. What is Sleepy Hollow? Um, that's in Des Moines. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Okay. Never heard of that one. Yeah. Neat. Um, well, thank you, Manu. This has been awesome. A, a wonderful chatting with you. Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, you're, you're very varied, as I expected <laughs> to be in a human. Um, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure having you, oh, thank on, you. on my podcast. Uh, all right. So we're going to... We're going to do this for the first time. This is my first exit. Work History is myself as the host, Cassie Townsend, Jacquette of All Trade. Theme song is wrapped by Greg Lestratz. Kiss Chris Kempton is our associate producer. New episodes every Wednesday. Check show notes for any additional info. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and share because it really does help. What's your work history?